Welcome back to 16 Artists. This is part two of my conversation with Kimiko Matsuda Lawrence and Caroline Xu. Let's dive right back in. Especially tension and balance, like reframing something that tension feels, I know there's good tension, but often it feels like bad. It does. <laughs> like as necessary and, and, you know, on the same, on the same page as something that can feel really tranquil. Um, is nice. And that's something that you don't have to fight against. I think maybe that's where the film comes in too, because I felt very, I wrote this like pilot when I was first starting to write and it was only because that issue was very important to me. But the moment you do that, people are like, okay, you want to get staffed? You want to do it? And then I was like, okay, I, I need to want that. I need to do that. And very quickly I like realized I didn't. And I think that was really hard to say. And people, when I would tell them, would immediately just like disqualify me as like a real artist because I didn't want to do this thing that was defined. And I was like, no, I actually like, I'm not trying to be a multi-hyphenate. I just think like different things need to be said in different ways. And I will not always want to write one form, one topic, one medium, because I think the concept of change and like malleability is still very hard. Mm. Right. That you can be different things. You can have valleys and peaks and that doesn't mean you're not serious or, and like, that was like my personal struggle was like, I felt like I had to be a like brick by brick Meryl Streep actor. I had to go get training. I couldn't like Kamiko. I feel like you were so ahead of our time, but also like, especially my brain time, because I was like, no, I can't write and direct my own work. I, I was like too scared to like do an independent thing. Cause I was like, no, 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 Caroline. Like you've got it. Like you're on a path. Like, you're going to be a theater artist. You've got to go to Broadway. Like, let's not stray. And I remember you doing that and being like so jealous because I was like, she's found freedom in a way that I don't think I'm ready to find. And maybe it wasn't exactly that from my point of view. It was like, oh my God, like there's a way you can create your own work. It took me a very long time to be like happy with myself or like validated enough to be like, I can create my own work and I don't need to show anybody. And it is also enough. And it's what I want to mm-hmm. And like having been an actor for so long removed me from the responsibility of saying what I actually wanted to say. Um, and so the the film part of it is like, I think I do really, there's some things I want to say that live well in like a film format or just like a long form, non-episodic format. And um, I was very lucky to, <laughs> I'm very lucky to have these couple of white friends in my life who um, give me some money. And, um, and I've been able to like make this last thing I shot in April um, in San Antonio, Texas is very personal and like very hard to pitch because it's really just an experience. It's not a log line. And it was an incredibly like difficult, but like so enriching. Like I'm in the edit now, but like that, oh my God, it's like, it's more than like, I think I could have gotten from therapy because it's like, oh, like the actors who were sharing their things with me. And like, I spoke to, it's about like me and my father and we have a very difficult relationship, but I met like 70 Chinese dads through that. And they all read the script and they all responded. Wow. That's so beautiful. It was awesome. Like I felt like halfway through casting, I was like, I don't even know if I need to make this film because what one man said to me about reading the script was like, that was what I needed to hear from somebody who looks like my dad. I like, it's literally that sometimes. Um, Yeah. It's the most, it was like the most rewarding thing I've done in like years. Um, Can you share, can you share what that person said or do you want to keep it to yourself? Oh yeah. I mean the story, I just had a very difficult childhood and I don't think I ever acknowledged that because I had very much thought I was like, well, I got out, I moved past it. 
And this man read the script and he was like, I'm so sorry that happened to you, which still makes me cry. And then, oh, mm. like I cast these two non-actors who eventually the dad and um, the daughter were unrelated. And there was a very difficult scene and this girl had never acted. And I was like, oh, she'll be fine. And the mom's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been telling her that like you have a very healthy childhood, but this is another little girl story. And that like gets me <sighs> like, oh, like, wow. Yeah, like I know it's my story, but sometimes it's still hard to like, I want to separate who I am and the artist self and my work. And when people can put those together in a very simple way, um, very healing. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. And I feel like that's yet another example of like how the experience of making Mm. this thing was like more important and valuable and meaningful and what you needed than like the output or the product or like whatever like you know in the capitalist framework like this thing that you can take to you know and take around and show people in meetings yeah like like your experience with holding it's just like it is holding right yeah yeah I think what's lost in people's conversation around the arts and their value for society is the value of the creative process. Yes. Always being evaluated on the final product. Whereas, yeah, in corporate Mm -hmm. settings, if the emphasis is money, money only really thinks about the product. And people are willing to have a process that is destructive to their bodies and destructive to their lives if it means at the end they get a product that gives them money. But we as artists can ask the question, why not think about the process and have a process that is healing and generative and loving Mm. and, and curious and mysterious and let that be your life. Let that be your work, you know, in the Audre Lorde's essay, The Erotic as Power. Basically she asks this question about why we've separated pleasure from work, why we insist on working in a way that is divorced from desire. I think that that factors into how artists, you know, we follow our desires through our work. And that's so hard to do in a capitalist society that says, if it's, if it's fun, it's not work and you don't deserve money for it. So what would happen if we invited more people, people maybe who don't identify as artists to embrace desire and curiosity in whatever work they do and and do work that is creative and and healing and sparks moments like that those beautiful moments caroline that you just described i mean that's human existence that's human life like isn't that what we want in our lives right and like you said it's almost like you didn't even need to finish the film totally yeah That's so beautiful. I want to like talk to you sometime like off offline to like get your just like advice and stuff. Cause I'm trying, I'm, I'm producing a film this summer. It's so I'm like a producer on it. It's my partner's film that she's like written and she's going to direct, but it's my first time as a producer. It's my first time working with films. And, and I think similarly, it's very much like, it's so funny because like a lot of what you're saying, there's so many parallels, but it's like a return to childhood and unpacking trauma and like going home to do it. Like she's from New Orleans. So we're going to go shoot it in New Orleans and like return to the neighborhood she grew up. I think also similarly, the process of even just like, even now as we're like 
leading up to it and doing all of this preparation, it has been like a lot of like really vulnerable conversations. And it almost feels like therapy or therapeutic. Like it's that it's such an emotional process. And um, what you said has just been making me reflect upon that and like think about how the making of, of this film has actually been like a really, a really beautiful healing thing. And it's not even about like the film or like the product at the end. Like it's really about this experience that we're getting to share together. And even just like her being able to talk to her family about some of this stuff and like talk about things that she's never really shared before. Um, So it's just, it's cool being also getting to like be a producer on that and sort of just like, I don't know, create, create the space for all of that to happen. Um, And it it makes, it's making me want to like, do it myself someday too, like, you know, make a film myself. I don't know. I'm thinking of maybe taking like this, this pilot I wrote and like just taking like a little piece of it and filming it as a short film, because I'm just like, I want to see this thing made, even if it's not for anything in the like capitalist sense, like it's like for me, you know, just because like I wrote the story because I needed to write, like I literally like needed to get it out of my body, you know, I'm hoping that I can like, I don't know, take inspiration from you and, and follow in your footsteps and have a beautiful like experience like you did that that's what I need, you know? But also what you said reminded me, like I was really struggling with this marketability thing mm. and, you know, being like, just shift, shift your, your thing just a little bit. And like, I think I realized that like someone out there is always going to be a shark and always going to be able to sell something. And I actually don't need to worry because that's how like evil capitalism is. Like they can take anything pure and they can sell it. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially in the like digital age where everything's being remixed and audience, it's just about, it's actually, I think finding your niche and being super specific is what's needed now. Generality is not the thing anymore. And sometimes you just got to make it like, you're just going to make the thing so that they know that there's an audience, you know what I mean? Cause I feel like they don't know that this is something that people want until you make it. They don't see these people (laughs) because, because the gatekeepers are all like white. I wanted to, pick up on something that Kimiko said, which is it needed to come out of your body. Like I believe art is better when it comes from a place of necessity. Mm. Do you agree? Yes. <laughs> Caroline, what about you? Caroline, you want to go first? Do you agree? Um, yeah, I feel like I can only write things that are necessary and urgent, which is also maybe I like been trying to unpack that a little bit um, because of the the white people in my life were like, I do this for fun. Like, this is just a plot. This is a story. I'm like, is it all? I don't know how to do that. (laughs) I don't think I know. And I've tried. And then I've tried. And then sometimes the white people will be like, oh, why didn't you write about your like struggle here? And I'm like, I've never had one with you. But personally, I feel like I I very much like write from a place of, or, or even just do anything from a place of like, it needs to happen now which is so funny when they ask those like grant questions, like why this, why now? I'm like, Oh, that's, it has to be. (laughs) Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's always been like urgent 
for me. It's just like the thing has to come out of you. And also, I think it goes back to that thing I was saying before about how we're just like placed into these situations where we literally can't speak where we are silenced you know like when a white person says or says something racist to your face and you don't have the power in that situation to call them out and to be like no no I will not abide this I will not stay in this room while you say this racist thing to my face for all of those moments that's why I write you know what I mean because like that moment like when that white person says the n-word and you can't say something and you're just like shocked and in silence and like no one's saying anything and you want to scream that's what you you write from that place you know what I mean and like I feel like that's been every project that I've done has been writing from that place and writing like for all the moments when I couldn't speak or when I couldn't say something and putting those in my writing and it's like a catharsis it's like I had to get this out. I had to make sense of this. I had to process this stuff. It's always like so emotional for me. Like I will literally be writing a scene and be moving myself to tears because it's like so, because it's so deep. Like it's so, it's so like from where I was in that moment in my life and it's like reliving it and like, and there is no separation. You know what I mean? Like it's just so emotional for me. And even like when I go back and read it, I'm like, this is a lot like it's there's so much of myself that that goes into it and it comes from such a deep place of need and from such a place of like being like a woman of color being like a black woman being all of these things in the world where like so much of the time I I literally like can't fully show up and honor myself in that moment. So I have to do it in my writing. And it is the safest place to do it. It's sort of the only safe place to do it. It comes back to this like tension we've been talking about, but yes, it's always needed. It's always urgent. I just realized today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Yeah, we're one year. I'm glad we're talking about what we're talking about. You know, this year, like I had to get off Twitter. I had to get off social media because it was just like too much, like seeing the videos and the photos and like that constant onslaught of violence against my people. It's like, you can't even function. Like you can't, you can't do anything. And it's really hard because like on one hand, I feel like I'm, I'm doing what I need to do to, to protect myself. but then you kind of feel guilty because you're avoiding it, but you can't, you also can't avoid it because it just will hit you. And then, you know, I'll literally like drive through the city and I'll see a picture of Brianna Taylor and I'll just break down in tears in the car. It just hits you. And it's like, you're out for the day. Sometimes it's too much. Sometimes I literally just want to curl up in bed and hide from the world. And like the idea that we're supposed to be like productive under all of that, like constant violence as a continuation like, of the violence. It is as people of color, as black people, as Asian people is just like ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's just, and the fact that white people can compartmentalize it, like you said, can think of it as an issue, mm-hmm. like as a social justice issue outside of their body. Yeah. Like I literally feel pain inside when, when these things happen. Like I woke up today and I saw that it was a one year anniversary and I was like, you feel that and it's everywhere around you. It's ev- you can't walk out your door without it as an artist. And as a human being, like, how do you move through that? And sometimes 
all I can do is keep moving. That's all I can ask of myself and of my body because anything more than that is just impossible on some days. So that's, that's also what I want to share with, with all of my people out there, all of my black people, all of my Brown people, all of my Asian people, all of my people out there, like who are listening. I just want you to know that sometimes it's okay to just be, and your survival is revolutionary. Like us still being here with everything that we've been through and everything our people have been through. That is the most incredible thing. And you don't have to do anything. Like you don't have to do anything today. You can just like be black and live. And that is a miracle, you know? Something that I experienced last year was just when the Atlanta shootings happened, it was a moment for my family and my community where... It was a poignant moment where I think we felt that physical embodied pain that you're talking about. And part of my reaction was like, it it made me, I think, understand just on a slightly deeper level what Black people are going through on a daily basis and and, Mm. and on a much more higher frequency in the United States. And it made me, it gave me a little bit of a wake up call there of like, Mm. this is what you're talking about. This is what you mean when you say you can't come to work the next day. Yeah. I was like, actually, when it's internalized, when it's when it's felt embodied, then it, it takes on a whole new level of understanding and truth. And I think that is something that white people just yeah. can't connect to without it happening to them in that way. And obviously it's 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 a different dimension for for Asian people. And there's a whole, I think it's important not to make the conversation black and white. Like there's a right. lot of nuance to, to to dive into. But I just wanted to say that I think I want to offer my solidarity and offer it with depth and mm-hmm. um support everything that you just said. Yeah. And I remember like the like I think it was maybe the the day of or the day after the Atlanta shootings, like I was literally on two Zooms that day for work. And one was a Zoom that was like, I think mostly white people. Maybe there were a couple of people of color, but there were no Asian people. And then another one was a Zoom that was like all black people and there were no Asian people. And it was this thing where I was just like, I was feeling so much that day and I was feeling like the pain of what had just happened but it's sort of just like not even acknowledged. I mean, I'm sure people like were thinking about it, but it wasn't really, it's just such a weird experience and like isolating experience to know that like you're the only one in this space who is feeling this thing and that no, everyone else is kind of just going on like normal and like laughing and joking. And then also you're then expected to do your job that day. Like, and you have to kind of pretend like everything's fine. That was hard. And it was like, it was a weird moment for me too, because often like people don't even see me as Asian. Like I'm half Japanese. My mom is Japanese and I feel like I'm very Japanese. Like I was raised by a Japanese mother, but like people like, like, and Asian people too often don't see me as Asian and white people don't see me like people just don't see me as that because like you know they just can't can't see blackness and read anything outside of that so it it was definitely a weird moment for me and even like the time when I experienced hearing like a racist like anti-Japanese slur in a workplace that was another moment where I was just like wow like 
no one else is going to speak up about this and I have to be the one to speak mm-hmm. up about this, but I don't want to be the problem, mm-hmm. you know? And no one understands that like, like my grandpa was called that when he was a kid, like mm-hmm. after Pearl Harbor, like my grandpa was like incarcerated with his family at Heart Mountain concentration camp behind barbed wire. People just don't even see it and people don't understand like the deep pain that that carries and the history that we carry with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, Caroline, how have you been like, I don't know, feeling and doing and with with all of this this year? I mean, I think the sad reality was I was just was not surprised, specifically like the Asian sentiments that I was actually really frustrated because my frustration with a lot of Asian people I felt is like this willful ignorance. And my mom recently got like, oh God, what's the word for this? I mean, she was a victim of a hate crime. Mm. Um, and she was so willfully ignorant that she, that was a hate crime. Like, mom, you got to report it to the police. Like, that was not the oh. That guy tried to, like, rob you, you know. And she was like, no, no, no. I must have just done – I must have, like – I shouldn't go shopping after six. I'm like, no. No, no. Ugh. I mean, and my parents have their own. They're very conservative, so they have their own, like, thing. But, like, that – I was just really angry with – people being like, oh, I've never felt racism before. I'm like, you have never felt racism before. You're, you're, you're just sleeping at home. Yeah. I I don't know. Like, so I had, it was battling. Like, I felt like I wanted to be part of that, but I was just kind of mad at some Asian people. Yeah. Cause you're like, this is not the first time. No. And if it is for you, like you've been doing so little for black people, for other people of color, like you're just not like, it happens to you. You think it's a bad thing. Like, yeah. That's so, I mean, I think the large thing I'm getting from our conversation today also is like this, the separation, the bodily separation, the environmentalization mm. of like, just like that phrase, like, oh, we don't talk politics in this house. Like this, it's not politics. It's just it's not, it's personal. It's our lives. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I mean, personally for me also, like it took, I like Raylan, like did not know the extent of how, black people have to live day to day and like it took the video it took people multiple people dying over like a very like you know like what is a repetitive like time frame yeah it's just like it sucks that like it takes that much for people to empathize with something so obvious when like when a white person tells me like their dog died I'm like oh no like you know like that Yeah. And it's interesting because like, I'm just thinking back to like last week, like when the anti-Asian hate crime bill, I saw it on the news and I was like in New Orleans because we were scouting locations for the film. And I was like at my girlfriend's family's house and she's black and her family's black. And like their reaction was like, wow, like they got that so fast. Yes. Like it was like one year of hate crimes and bam, they got a bill. But we have been victims of hate crimes for hundreds of years and America still won't. And we still can't get an anti-lynching act passed, like a bill passed. I was sitting there and I was feeling really like, I was feeling all of these emotions because like on one hand, I'm very glad that they like passed that bill. But on the other hand, a lot of the anti-Black hate crimes in this country are sanctioned by the U.S. government are like committed by law enforcement officers and like, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like, they could never pass that. It's, it's such a, it's such a difficult thing because like on one hand I'm sitting there and I'm like, 
y'all I'm Asian. And like, I'm also feeling what you're feeling. Like, and I felt like a little conflicted, not, not, I won't even say conflicted in that moment because I was feeling what everyone in that room was feeling as a black person. But I was also like that bill needed to be signed. And it, and it's like, you know, because this is not new either. Like there, like Vincent Chin was killed like many years ago and so many other Asian people were killed through by hate crimes, but it's like, we we need this for everybody and just the the fact that like america is willing to do it for some people first before other people and the like original like when one of the original crimes that america was founded on is like anti black violence so it was a difficult moment and a difficult i don't know i'm like i feel like i need to write about that moment cuz it's just like like yeah i'm half black and half asian but it it never feels like it can just be like straight down the middle in a way like like I'm I'm like biologically I guess but it's just like I the way that I show up and I'm read in this world and I'm treated in this world as as a black woman I really want to acknowledge the complexity of mixed race experience because I think that's something that I'm also starting right. to pay more attention to as someone who's mixed race and I think that's also been my struggle with the discourse around identity politics is that sometimes it categorize everything in terms of this race, this race, this race, and this race. But then we, as people who are living proof that these categories are not mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. have to navigate and we end up trying to split ourselves. We try to split ourselves into, oh yeah, this part, we code switch a lot. Like we think of ourselves as fragmented rather than whole. And we're always kind of in these conversations, like, oh, yeah, yeah well, where do I fit in, you know, here and there? And I'm like, maybe the conversation is what's needs, what needs to change. And if we bring back what Toni Morrison said about white people, you are a race too, mm-hmm. and that is constructed. And when we take that away, what is left? Right. I kind of want to apply that logic to the whole American identity politics right. mess. If we take away race... Yeah. What is left? It's it's hatred. It's 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 fear. Right. And how do we heal that? And right. of course, there's ways in which these lines are like they need to be maintained for us to think about justice and for us to think about the histories of how people have been read and separated very concretely based on race, like literally in legislation in the past. And to unpack that and and know what our privileges are being a part of these of, of certain communities you know one way i think that needs to happen is like asian people need to show more solidarity for black people and there needs to be serious examination and extrication of anti-blackness in asian communities thank you there is so much power there will be so much power when we wake up and we ally together i've been thinking a lot about positionality i think mm. if we everyone can think about what their position is within all of this. It's harder to to like know what the tectonic like plates are because they're all moving and they're fraught and they're based on these labels. But I'm learning what my privileges are and mm. um, what I can do. Because for example, I don't think I would have the career that I have as a Yangqing player if I wasn't white passing. Um, I don't mm. think I would have even maybe learned the Yangqin if I w- weren't white passing because I have so many Chinese, like full Chinese friends who like have had to distance themselves from Chinese culture in order not mm. to be like, because of yeah. racism basically. And yeah. 
you know, I had a friend ah. in freshman year who's chi- who's Chinese from China. I was like, come like study East Asian studies with me. Like, let's do a secondary together. She was like, Raylan, you don't understand. Like, I can't study East Asian studies wow. because everyone thinks I already know it, you know, like, yeah, and it's so just, messed up. it's so messed up. And, and yeah. so, yeah, thinking about how do I leverage my privilege in the right ways and take on certain kinds of labor, emotional or otherwise, to make change and be a part of a cycle of change that is constructive, um, that is natural, achievable, I guess, um, but also challenging, the right amount of challenging. I want to now close our conversation with one question to both of you. And because we've talked about change, you're the first pair that I'm asking this question. Everyone else I've been asking a specific question at the end, and now I'm going to change it. So I want to hear... We're special. You speak briefly on what is the change you want to be a part of in the world? I think the simplest way I can put it is what I've actually been trying to work on personally, which is that change is good and change is necessary and to have change be the normal. And I I think I'm speaking of like everything. I think I'm thinking a lot about mental health. I'm thinking a lot about relationships and identity and just how we relate to each other. And like, I feel sometimes just like already weighed down and like by my conceptions or the learnings that I've done. And I want to be that person when I'm 95 and still like truly interested and like truly willing to be like, Oh no, I said the wrong thing. Oh no, I didn't know enough in this situation. I don't know. Yeah. And just that, that for me feels like the the biggest like struggle in my life right now is, is being happy with change. I always want to be working toward freedom. I always want to be working toward Black liberation and freedom for my people. And I've always believed in storytelling as a tool to build a new world where where we can be free and where we can see ourselves in a new way and where we can feel whole and feel new. I think I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to build that in my work and in, in my storytelling, but I'm also trying to build that in my life and in the lives of my people. And I'm still figuring out how to do that. It's a constant journey and it's something that I'm growing in. And, you know, part of that is also being kind to myself and reminding myself that I have freedom, that I have a choice, that I always have a choice. And that I am in control of, of my life and, and who I and who and what I give myself to. I always want to make sure that my work is in is in service of that. And that's something that I'm trying to realign with in this moment of pause and this moment of profound change in all of our lives. If you'd like to learn more about Kimiko Matsuda-Lawrence and Caroline Xu, you can check out their bios at 16artists.com. Thank you to the Harvard Office for the Arts and the Harvard Alumni Association for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Shez Manzor for co-producing, editing, and mixing today's episode. 
Make sure not to miss our next and final episode featuring visual artist Alistair Debling and illustrator Rachel Cheung. My name is Raylan Yant, and thank you for listening to 16 Artists.